Hey there, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, and this is episode 16. Today I'm sharing with you an interview with Jamie Sue Rankin, a fellow Caltech graduate student who works on NASA's Voyager missions, which just celebrated their 40th anniversary not long ago. This interview was recorded shortly before Star Trek Discovery launched, so you'll hear us make reference to the show as something that's still forthcoming. We're up to episode three right now, and I hope to share my thoughts on that with you later this week. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this delightful discussion with Jamie Sue Rankin. Jamie, I'm so happy to have you here for this podcast because it is the 40th anniversary of the launch of Voyager 1 and 2, NASA's spacecraft that they put out into outer space in 1977, and now it's 2017, and you are pushing the boundaries of space science by analyzing the data from both Voyager missions, right? Yes, And yes. Um, So I work in the planetary science department, and I feel like I get to see and partake in the Voyager mission peripherally through the walls of my hallway because they are littered with all sorts of beautiful space images of the different planets. And I feel like the classic planetary portraits for so many of the outer solar system planets were taken by either Voyager 1 or Voyager 2. Um, so this has been one of NASA's most prolific space missions ever, and you get to work on it. So I'm really excited to hear what you've discovered as Voyager has now left the solar system and has gone into interstellar space. But first of all, I thought we'd get to know you. Jamie, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thanks, Mike. My name is Jamie Sue Rankin. I am starting my sixth year now as a graduate student here at Caltech. That's exactly how long I've been at Caltech, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a great six years, for sure. Yeah. I am getting a PhD in physics and I work with Dr. Ed Stone, who is my advisor. Now, I know that Ed Stone is one of the legends of space science and of Caltech. What is it like to work with Dr. Ed Stone? Dr. Stone is a wonderful advisor. He is a very thorough and careful scientist, and he's very patient and has a whole lot of experience. And also, he has a lot of enthusiasm for all the discoveries that are being made. I feel like that's one of the most important qualities to have as an advisor, is enthusiasm to infect your students with so that they work super hard even when science gets tough. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I met a few years ago on the set of Boldly Go, which was the musical that Caltech put on in 2016, the Star Trek parody musical. And you were the director of the pit band, right? And you also played, um, you played the keyboard. I guess that made all sorts of sounds that all of the other instruments couldn't make. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, the synthesizer. The synthesizer, yeah, yeah that's the word. Fill that's the, the word, yeah. Um, I remember the first rehearsal that we had the pit band with us. We'd been rehearsing for months, just the lines and the songs with 
like a, a recording of a piano track and it just made a world of difference to have the pit band there it elevated just the way everything sounded by orders of magnitude and I was shocked I was blown away because this was my first musical experience I came into boldly go just as a Star Trek fan so I was discovering this whole new world of musical theater and having the pit band just made everything sound so amazing I know you have a degree in music, right? Is this a, uh, like a bachelor's degree in music? A bachelor's degree in music composition. Composition, excellent. And so I wanted to ask you, do you have any favorite Star Trek musical score or song that you just love? Sure. In my musical studies in undergraduate, I had the privilege of taking some really great electronic music courses and one of the most fascinating instruments that we were able to uh, play with and see is called the Ond Martino. And it is a cross between an organ and a theremin. And a theremin is another electronic instrument. Anyway, my favorite part of the original series is, is the, the classic theme that has the Ond Martino sound. So, so actually, if people are wondering what an on Martino is, just think of those few opening melodies uh, in in the original series. And then my second favorite, I would say, is the theme in Next Generation mm -hmm. uh, because I play I play French horn. And I love the whole cinematic brass sound, and uh, the trumpet solo is just beautiful. So, yeah. so I love it for the instrumentation. I played trumpet from fifth grade through high school, but I, I always loved the French horn sound. I don't know if you've watched much Deep Space Nine, but the opening sequence of Deep Space Nine, I think it was a trumpet at first, and then like in season three they changed it to a French horn solo, and both versions are amazing. Uh, I just I just love the Deep Space Nine opening. So, how much of Star Trek are you familiar with? Well, I grew up watching the original series with my parents, and way back when I also saw all those movies. And right now, I am going through the uh, the next generation. And I do nice. remember when Deep Space Nine came out, I remember seeing my parents watch it. They're, they're huge Star Trek fans, uh -huh. and they they have all the series that are out so far, and they're looking forward to uh, Star Trek Discovery, same yeah, as me. We all are. I guess if you grew up with Star Trek in the household, was that an influence, you think, in pursuing a career in physics and space science? I think it maybe was some what of an influence. I, I would also say that probably the reason that we watched Star Trek was an already existing interest in the space science. Mm -hmm. So so just just uh, seeing the possibilities, reimagining how science could develop in the future was definitely a draw for watching Star Trek. 
So we're here today to talk about Voyager. Like I said, it's the 40th anniversary this year of the Voyager mission's launch. And Star Trek has its own versions of Voyager. The most famous is the USS Voyager, of course, the um, titular spaceship of the Voyager Star Trek series that lasted seven seasons and was captained by Captain Catherine Janeway. And that ship, I don't know if it's ever declared in Star Trek lore that it's named after the Voyager spacecraft that NASA sent out in the 70s, but it probably is, right? <laughs> it probably is. And then there's another Voyager in the motion picture, the very first Star Trek film that is called V'ger, and it's this space probe that comes and threatens the safety of every living thing on Earth. And the great story about V'ger is that it's actually Voyager 6. I guess we launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and then the people writing Star Trek decided, hmm, NASA will probably launch four more of these, and then Voyager <laughs> 6 is going to go out. It's going to leave the solar system just like the rest of the Voyager probes, and it's going to encounter some kind of alien planet with living machines on it. And these sentient machines are going to fix this broken spacecraft from Earth, reprogram it to do its main mission, which is to, to seek out as much knowledge as it can and then return it back to its creator. Um, that's the reason why we send any probe out into space. Right. But this new Voyager 6 was enhanced so much that it was dangerous to humanity and, and became sentient and wanted to know its creator and was shocked and appalled to find out that its creators were organic beings um, <laughs> after having been fixed and reprogrammed by sentient artificial life forms. So that's that's what V'ger is uh, from Star Trek, the motion picture. So Star Trek definitely has been inspired by the Voyager missions. And I wanted to ask you about Voyager's long 40-year journey. What, what to you are the main highlights of the past 40 years of Voyager science? So I will say that uh, I'm much younger than those 40 years <laughs> of science. <Yeah. laughs> in fact, the, the last planetary encounter was in 1989, mm -hmm. the Neptune encounter. And it was a year after I was born, but, but the history of Voyager is just startling and it's kind of amazing to me to have this opportunity to work with people where it wasn't history it was their everyday lives and yeah. so looking back on the significance of of those discoveries i would say that the whole fact of being able to see those four outer planets mm -hmm. in just just one shot is amazing in itself the odds of that planetary alignment happening are just incredible. And the alignment, it happens every 177 years or so. Oh, wow. And the opportunity was just beautiful for mm -hmm. humankind to see all of those in one shot. So for, for the people who don't normally think about planetary orbits, sure, it's, you know, sometimes people have this picture of the solar system as all the planets are just in a, in a row, right? right. And that's how they're depicted in a lot of media because it's just the simple way to show the pictures of all the planets. Right. But really, they're all going around the sun at, at different rates. And so while Jupiter might be on one side of the solar system, Uranus and Neptune could be completely you know, on opposite sides, and you would never be able to, to get to them with the spacecraft, right? Right. Well, you couldn't, you couldn't go there in one shot because mm -hmm. it would require a lot of kind of remaneuvering and orienting and 
And right now we don't have that technology energy wise to do this. I see. Okay. So, so anyway, so Voyager 2 was the one that went through all four planets, starting with Jupiter and then Saturn, then uh, Neptune or Uranus and then Neptune. Voyager 1 went to Jupiter and Saturn and and actually, there's been no spacecraft sent close to Neptune or Uranus uh, ever since. So, so all of the data that we have, close-up pictures beyond just Hubble remote imaging, is from Voyager, Voyager 2 measurements. And that's from 1989 or so. 1989 was, was the, uh, the last encounter with, with Neptune. So we haven't been to the so-called ice giant planets, Uranus and Neptune, for the past, let me see if I can do math here, 28 years? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. Pretty close yeah. to that. Uh-huh. Wow, so we really need to get back out there. Yeah, and I think some of the discoveries, the startling discoveries that were made along this journey were just the diversity of all the moons, of the bodies throughout the solar system. People were expecting, for example, the moons of Jupiter to to be all the same, kind of very similar to our moon, a little heavily cratered, but instead they encountered moons with far more variety than than they could have ever expected. So that was that was a huge uh, huge eye opening sort of thing. And one of the one of the most well known discoveries now was the volcanoes on Io. Oh, yes. uh, that was the first time that anyone had seen active volcanoes anywhere beyond Earth. That's a really exciting discovery. You know, nowadays, I mean, you and I, we grew up learning about the planets in school, learning about the planets moons. We all know Io as the pizza moon, right? It looks like a pizza (laughs) because it's got, it's pockmarked with lots and lots of volcanoes and it's kind of yellowishly orangey reddish color right so it looks like a pepperoni pizza it does and we just we just learned that as a fact in school but can you imagine being someone like edstone finding that out for the first time oh my goodness there's a moon with active volcanoes out there it must have been incredible it must have been indeed yeah so the pictures on the, of the different planetary bodies on the walls downstairs in the planetary science department that i was talking about there's a beautiful one of triton Uh It was taken by Voyager. And Triton's another very incredible moon, um, moon of Neptune. It's very geologically diverse for something that should just be like a dead hunk of ice and rock out in the outer reaches of the solar system. And I walk by Triton every day and I'm just like, wow, you know, who ordered that? Where did that come from? Is it still you know, moving and exciting. There's reports of like perhaps plumes on Triton and it's just wild out there. Anyhow, any other highlights that you want to tell us about from Voyagers 1 and 2? Oh, sure. So in the past 10 years, there have been a lot of exciting discoveries made, but instead of in the realm of taking pictures and planetary science, it's been more in the realm of understanding the dynamics of how the sun interacts with the interstellar medium. And so basically the sun emanates material that creates a solar wind, and this solar wind, it blows a bubble basically around all the planets and way far out, three times the distance between here and Pluto. And eventually this expansion just stops because it runs into equilibrium with the interstellar medium. What do people mean when they say interstellar medium? So the interstellar medium is 
basically the space between stars. Okay. Basically, there wasn't a set definition until Voyager crossed the interstellar medium. Okay. Uh, into the interstellar medium. That that was kind of redefining what, what we thought of. But for a long time, scientists postulated that there was this clear boundary where the material coming from the sun just kind of ends like a shock front, kind of like a magnetosphere. It's like the end of the magnetosphere, and then outside of this is just dust and uh, ionized particles, just the space between the stars. So I liked what you said, how, how the sun blows a bubble around uh, the solar system. And so we define the edge of the solar system by the boundary of this bubble. Yeah, right? so so this bubble has two layers. There's okay. an inner layer where, where all the flow is supersonic and then it kind of slows down okay and that layer is called termination shock i see and then the outer layer is called the heliopause okay and then there's this region in between where it's still influenced by the sun but the flows are a lot slower than they are in interplanetary space and so voyager one the farthest spacecraft that we've sent from earth so far passed the heliopause is that right right it's it's completely outside of the solar system now not very influenced by the sun at all right and this happened in august 2012 is that it, right it was august 25th uh 2012 and it was just a within a few days of my basically i moved to caltech five days later so yeah. it was quite an exciting time for right sure. <laughs> yeah i remember also coming to caltech at around the same time the Curiosity rover had just landed on Mars, and Voyager 1 had just left the solar system, and both of those things are basically run out of here, and I was just like, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so you're studying the data that Voyager has been sending back from the outer reaches and outside of the solar system, right? So, right. So what exactly do you study? What kinds of questions do you ask of the data, and what have you found out? Sure. So, so I work on the cosmic ray subsystem instrument, the data analysis for galactic cosmic rays coming from this instrument. And basically what we saw when we left the solar system and reached interstellar space was that all the particles, solar particles, which have a known composition, all those kind of dropped in their intensity pretty suddenly while the galactic cosmic ray particles increased a lot in okay. their intensity. So galactic cosmic rays, they don't often pierce through the heliopause boundary because there's a lot of magnetic fields that, that serve as a barrier. And a lot of these particles are ionized, so, so they just get deflected by the magnetic fields. So for the first time, there's certain energies of these particles that basically can't pierce through. And first time we're able to see those directly. Mm. So we're sampling basically particles that can't enter our solar system. Right. Voyager 1 is going where no spacecraft has gone before and encountering brand new things. So what are galactic cosmic rays, first of all, and what have we learned about them? So galactic cosmic rays are basically coming from everywhere. Galactic meaning our galaxy and uh, not solar, so they have different, very different energies, very different distribution of particles than, than what we typically see, uh, different abundances of the different elements. Mm. So a cosmic ray can be 
anything. It's, it's like it's it could be a photon, it could be a like a hydrogen atom, it could be yeah, it can, it can be any any sort of isotope. There's quite a quite a wide range of uh, things it can be. The heavier the element, the more likely it is to come from nearby because okay. it breaks. It will break up as mm. it comes travels through space. I see. So there's certain certain abundances like hydrogen abundances are a whole lot more than say carbon mm-hmm. floating around. Sure. But they see everything. All right, and so what have we learned about these galactic cosmic rays from Voyager? So some exciting things that we've learned about these is when we first reached interstellar space, we expected just the intensity to be fairly steady because inside where the sun is still controlling everything, that's kind of the opposite of what we see, I guess. We see that the sun's particles and magnetic fields and just behavior when it puts out solar flares and solar energetic particle events, it causes the galactic cosmic rays, their intensities to decrease. Mm. Um, So there's this thing called solar modulation, where when the sun is at the maximum intensity in its solar cycle, the galactic cosmic rays are at their lowest intensity inside. And when we reached interstellar space, we expected to see that that the count rates would no longer be influenced in this way, which they aren't in this way. Mm-hmm. But we still see signatures where shocks from the sun can kind of change the galactic cosmic ray intensities. And this was unexpected. Wow. So do you think that galactic cosmic rays could be harmful or dangerous to Voyager or to any other spacecraft that we send beyond the heliopause? So radiation is definitely a huge factor in sending something into space. One definitely wants to make sure that the electronics, for example, can withstand the environment. But the radiation around Jupiter and, and Saturn in, in the magnetospheres of those planets was a lot more than what Voyager will probably encounter in the future. And it's even a lot more than coming close to the sun. So, so it just depends on, on which region of space and how the plasma is flowing around. If, if there's an obstacle, there will tend to be an increase in the intensity of the, the radiation. And there have definitely been times where spacecraft have been affected by this. Mm-hmm. In fact, Voyager 1 had a plasma instrument, PLS, that ran into some problems with the Saturn encounter, and it's no longer working. And there were times in, when Voyager 2 also was hit by a galactic cosmic ray or something, some sort of radiation event that caused all of the instruments to behave in a just uncontrolled sort of way, and uh, they had to kind of figure out how to reconfigure some of the electronics to get around this problem. So bring things back to Star Trek, all Starfleet ships have a deflector dish at the very front, you know, it's like that glowing blue thing <laughs> facing forward. Um, and the reason, I think, for that is to deflect away harmful micrometeorites, but also just harmful radiation, radiation from, yeah. from slamming into the ship. I don't know exactly how that deflector dish works. I'd have to dig out my technical <laughs> manual. But, yeah, it's, re- it's really cool that, yes, 
those issues actually exist within the solar system and outside of it. And you're discovering what kinds of cosmic rays are outside of the solar system for the first time. Is there anything else that I should ask you about Voyager's discoveries outside of the solar system? So I would say that related to all this is kind of an interesting factor where we're coming up against the instruments, the whole spacecraft's lifetime. So Voyager is 40 years old. It has a radio thermal isotope generator, plutonium, Mm. and the half-life, it is Mm nuclear-powered, both Voyagers are. The half-life of that is 88 years, and we're 40 years into it. And we hope that Voyager 2 will cross into the interstellar medium soon. Uh, But there are decisions to be made in the future about what to prioritize for power. Right. So so turning off heaters might happen. Uh, There are certain maneuvers that are now limited in hopes to preserve power and last just as long as as we can make it go. We definitely look forward to continued discoveries, and we, we hope that we see sometime soon Voyager 2 also cross into the interstellar medium. Now there's one last thing that I want to ask you about the Voyager spacecraft. So like you said, they're, they're on their way out. You know, it's been 40 years. Maybe we'll get a couple more decades out of them if we're lucky. But eventually they will die. They'll power down. But they'll mm-hmm. keep moving out into space. And yeah. maybe one day... They'll be picked up by artificial life forms, uh, (laughs) sentient artificial life forms on another planet, or maybe by sentient organic life forms on another planet. And both Voyagers contain a message from the people of the Earth in these golden records. Right. They're very famous. And so what exactly is on the golden records? And how do they convey our message to whatever interstellar civilization may be out there. So the golden records have a combination of of sounds and also images, and people chose them in a way that would best represent Earth. So, for example, there's a sampling of music from from a wide variety of cultures <laughs> including Chuck Berry of course that's the first and, thing you, <laughs> you right, mentioned <laughs> yep. and uh, there's also a wide a wide selection of just greetings in different languages and some of the music also included is kind of like Beethoven Beethoven symphonies they, they basically tried to capture not not exactly decide the most famous that the Earth's ever produced, but try to capture just the essence of, of humanity and get a sampling of just the diversity. And then the records have inscribed, they have a kind of location of where we are with respect to with respect to the nearby pulsars, and there's instructions on how how the alien civilization should play this record. Uh-huh. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, we, I feel like we have to have a whole new podcast on communicating with aliens. Like, how exactly do you... I mean, can, you can't teach them English, right? Or, like, it's, that seems like a daunting task. I guess you have to communicate through mathematics or something. Mathematics, music. Yeah, I think music that's why music was selected. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, very cool. Yeah, hopefully one day somebody will pick up Voyager 1, Voyager 2, not reprogram it to be dangerous to its creators, but um, (laughs) uh, yeah, looking forward to that day for sure. 
Well, Jamie, thanks for being on this podcast and good luck with the rest of your research and your job applications in the future. I think after you're done watching Star Trek The Next Generation, you've got to watch a little Deep Space Nine to get that uh, trumpet French horn solo. But then also oh, yeah. watch Star Trek <laughs> Voyager, right? Because yeah. you are literally working on NASA's current Voyager. So I hope, uh, I hope you get to watch some Star Trek Voyager too. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yeah, right. sure. That concludes episode 16 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jamie Sue Rankin and learned something new about NASA's Voyager missions. Whenever you watch Star Trek The Motion Picture or tune in to an episode of Star Trek Voyager, I hope you are reminded of these two valiant spacecraft and their 40-plus year journey. They are the farthest things from home.